Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service. Let's pray together. Sovereign God, we come again to you as part of the great company of your people. We've come to offer our worship, to bring you the praise and the glory, the honor and the thanksgiving that you alone deserve. We've come with awe and wonder, humility and reverence, joy and celebration. For you are the great God above all other gods, gracious and loving, the creator of the ends of the earth, the giver of life in all its fullness. But we're here not just to bring our praise, but also to come with confession. For we have failed in so much. We have not worshipped as we should. We have not shown proper gratitude for all you have given us. We have not looked to you for guidance, nor have we always followed it when you gave us guidance. We have not loved one another or our neighbours as much as we love ourselves. We've been thoughtless and careless unselfish, and so much else that we should not have been. So we come with sorrow and a sense of shame, throwing ourselves once more upon your mercy, depending upon your grace to lift us and to renew us once more. Heavenly Father, grant us your forgiveness. Do not hold our faults against us. Give to us time for repentance and the strength to turn from our sins back toward you. Use this time of worship to touch our hearts, to speak to our minds, and to transform our lives. We bring these prayers to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, who taught us when we pray to say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever. Amen. Now in our service we come to our prayers of intercession. We're going to be thinking this morning of uh, our world. I don't know if you're like me, but every so often when I read the paper or watch television or I'm in a crowd of people, I get so annoyed sometimes at the language or at the discourtesy or at the rudeness, and sometimes even at the ignorance of what some people say. Forgive me, I'm really a very humble person, but I do find myself getting stirred sometimes. This is a prayer that's written, and it's entitled, Where There Seems No Hope of Change. Now, I forgot to give Paul the congregational response here, but I'm sure such an erudite and educated audience as this will find it no bother to say several times in this prayer when I say transforming God, 
The response is, may your light shine where there is darkness. I'm sorry, I have no chalk. I can't write it on a board or anything. But I'd like you, please, if you can, to make that response. May your light shine where there is darkness. Now let's pray together. Loving God, there are times when we look at people around us and find it hard to believe that things can ever change for the better. We see folks racked by illness, weighed down by anxiety, tormented by depression, crippled by debt, broken by alcohol, destroyed by drugs, scarred by bereavement, shattered through unemployment. And for all these cases and categories of humanity, we have to wonder sometimes what their prospects really are. What hope we can realistically offer them. What help we can possibly give. Transforming God. May your light shine where there is darkness. We pray now for such people known to us. Folk in the family. In our circle of friends. Members of our fellowship. Colleagues at work. Neighbours at home. And acquaintances as well as the countless people unknown to us, each struggling under their own particular burdens. Transforming God, may your light shine where there is darkness. We pray for our world, for those many people who face suffering, injustice, hardship and death. Transforming God, may your light shine where there is darkness. Reach out to all who are in despair, we pray. All who long for change, but see only hopelessness stretching before them. Touch their lives and bring them help, hope, healing and wholeness. Transforming God, may your light shine where there is darkness. Loving God, it's sometimes hard to believe those around us, still less in the world around us, will ever change for the better. We see countries broken by war, people consumed by hatred, thousands living in fear, nation turning against nation, multitudes made homeless by disasters, continents facing famine. And again, we wonder what the prospects really are. What hope anyone can offer? What help can possibly be given? Transforming God, may your light shine where there is darkness. And now, Father, we ask you, help us to see beneath the surface, to recognize again that you are at work and that things do change. Help us to see beyond appearances, recognizing that you are a God able to transform even the most hopeless of situations. Give to us and to all people the assurance that there is no one and no situation beyond the reach of your mighty power. Transforming God, may your light shine where there is darkness. We ask these things. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
We're going to have the scriptures read to us now, and Barbara Fisher is reading the lesson this morning. It's from Hosea, chapter 14, and can be found on page 882. The heading is, The Lord Promises New Life for Israel. The Lord says, I will bring my people back to me. I will love them with all my heart. No longer am I angry with them. I will be to the people of Israel like rain in a dry land. They will blossom like flowers. They will be firmly rooted like the trees of Lebanon. They will be alive with new growth and beautiful like olive trees. They will be fragrant like the cedars of Lebanon. Once again, they will live under my protection. They will grow corn and be fruitful like a vineyard. They will be as famous as the wine of Lebanon. The people of Israel will have nothing more to do with idols. I will answer their prayers and take care of them. Like an evergreen tree, I will shelter them. I am the source of all their blessings. Then the conclusion says, May those who are wise understand what is written here, and may they take it to heart. The Lord's ways are right, and righteous people live by following them. But sinners stumble and fall because they ignore them. Amen. Thank you, Barbara. I begin with a note of embarrassment and of apology. I have chosen as my text Hosea chapter 14 verse 5. Now that's in the Bible and Barbara read it from the edition of the Bible that we use in our services. What she read was, I will be as the rain to Israel. And the version that I've used since it became widely available, the NIV, the New International Version, Now, it's not the new Northern Ireland version, nor is it the nearly infallible version. It's the NIV. And it says this in line with countless other editions of the Bible for Hosea chapter 14, verse 5. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. I'm sorry, Barbara, I didn't want to upset you having given you the reading. And uh, I I don't make a habit of doing this. But there's a very subtle, well, there's not a subtle, there's a very obvious distinction between Jew and rain. So please pity me in my simplicity and let me speak to you about the Jew. Hosea got this message and bless his heart, he had a terrible time. He had had awful trouble with his wife and awful trouble, I think, with his children too. But he was a prophet and his heart beat strongly for God. And at the end, God had some lovely things to say through Hosea to us all. And I think this is exceedingly beautiful. I will be as the Jew to Israel. I was a hospital chaplain, a part-time hospital chaplain when I was in Plymouth. And I remember going into the big new Deriford Hospital at Plymouth, collar on, chaplain's badge on, 
And as I walked into the ward, some wag shouted out, Here's the sky pilot. Come to tell us what God's like. Come on then, Pantry, let's have it. And I thought, gosh, I mustn't hit this guy. (laughs) And I'd love to have done that at that moment. And then I remembered Hosea. Hosea, there's something in Hosea about this. I said, yes, yes. So I said in as loud a voice as possible, so everybody could hear. I said, I can tell you what God says he's like himself. Come on then, Padre. And I said, God said, I will be like the Jew unto Israel. Utter silence. I went across and spoke to this fellow. He had a visitor. It was his wife. She apologized for his rudeness. And every other man in the ward thanked me for shutting him up. (laughs) However, we're not here now. We're here to talk about the Jew. It's exceedingly beautiful. No one but a prophet could have put this figure together. But then, some of these Old Testament prophets were poets as well as being prophets. They'd thought about the deep things of the natural world. And they thought about the things of God. And they knew how to express a truth memorably. It would be impossible, I think, to find a more completely beautiful suggestion of what God can mean to his people and of what he does for them than is expressed in those words which Hosea put into the mouth of which God put, which Hosea put into the mouth of God I will be like the Jew to Israel you can imagine I think what these words would suggest to people living in a land like Israel. It's a land where there are long stretches in the year when no rain falls. It's a land on which the fertility of the soil depends so much on the copiousness of the Jew. And even in our own land, where rain is more frequent than we really want and sometimes abundant, we know something of what it means at the cool of a summer evening when the Jew comes and the waiting earth reaches out for its baptism from heaven. But why did Hosea take Jew as being a symbol for God? What did he mean to suggest by it? What does it convey to us? There must be some point or points of resemblance between the descent of the Jew on the ground and the gracious ministry it fulfills on the earth, and in the way in which God manifests himself to people like you and I. So can we gather something of the prophet's meaning from the figure he uses? Can we get behind the poetry of it? Can we learn anything in it about the ways of God? I want to say very firmly, we can indeed. Three great truths about the Jew. We'll come to them one by one. The first is, as you have probably all noticed, Jew falls in stillness. It falls very quietly. There's nothing as noiseless as a Jew fall. And it only comes when the world is still. There's no Jew falling 
when the wind is tearing through the trees and leaves are blowing everywhere and doors are banging. No, when the waves are beating on the shore and the clouds are being driven through the sky. No descent of dew then. It's in the stillness you discover the dew. On quiet nights, when there's not even a breeze or a breath of air. It's when everything is quiet and at peace, when the world of nature, as it were, is at prayer, and the stars are looking down from the serene and unclouded heaven. That's when dew falls, like a benediction upon plant and flower. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of how a prophet once waited for God to come to him? He was a prophet who believed in violence, the prophet of Eli- prophet Elijah. He'd just drawn down the fire from heaven on the top of Mount Carmel before the wandering eyes of Israel. He'd hewn into pieces with his sword the priests of Baal beside the brook Kishon. And he had just, by his passionate prayer, and then there swept over the sound of the land a tremendous thunderclap of rain. And Elijah fled into the desert and he came to Horeb, the mount of God. And he stood in a cave there in the mountain and he cried for God and waited for God to come. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then again the Lord spoke and said, Go and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and a powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake there came a fire, But the Lord was not in either fire or earthquake. And then after all these magnificent manifestations of nature, we read, there came a gentle whisper. And Elijah heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face and stood at the mouth of the cave. And he knew at last that God had come. Wind, earthquake, wind and fire. Nature's most terrible forces, God's not in them at all. Could ever a prophet of violence have been more plainly and emphatically rebuked? But in the still small voice, God came. It's another version, you see, of Hosea's words. I will be as the Jew to Israel. And then... To enforce this great truth, we turn into the New Testament. And when you come to the story which is told in the Gospels, it's the same truth that's being underlined for us. How quietly the Savior came at Bethlehem. They were expecting him to come with signs and wonders. Some believed he would come directly on the clouds of heaven. Others thought he would rend the heavens and come down. And Jesus slipped into the world so quietly 
There is parents and a handful of shepherds and three wise men were the only ones to notice him. After all, who would have noticed a child? For Christ came quietly, like the Jew. And his ministry afterwards, how quiet that was. Thirty years of silence at first, learning his trade at the carpenter's bench, showing his glory first there in the quiet duties of the home, Hardly a a word written that we can trust of the first 30 years of Christ's life. And then the fields and villages of Galilee and down by the lakeside and up in Jerusalem, how quietly he went about his father's business. Show us a sign, they demanded, but he refused them. The axe, the fire, The winnowing fan, they were John's signs. But even John the Baptist could be mistaken. They thought that Christ had come to draw his sword, to slay the wicked, to give them victory over their foes. But he opens his mouth and blesses the people and gathers the children round about him and speaks to them of the kingdom. And his words fall like balm on broken hearts. He seeks and saves the lost. And he wins for himself the most beautiful title. The friend of sinners. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He shall not strive or cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. And then in the end, there's that awful stillness when he finished his father's business and wrought his greatest work of all. What a stillness, the stillness of Calvary. What a silence. The silence of the cross. What a mute and yet what an eloquent appeal his outstretched arms. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. The New Testament version of the Old Testament words. I will be like the Jew to Israel. Folks, this is a lesson. We all need to learn and to relearn and relearn in the pressure and busyness of modern life. It's a lesson about the method and the manner of God. You know, when a man sets out to do anything in this world, there's a great commotion and a great deal of fuss and bother. There's blaring of trumpets and the noise of battle. But when God sets out to do something, He reigns in the majesty of silence, for he comes like the Jew. We're all waiting for a revival in the world today. And we're waiting even more anxiously and prayerfully for it, for God to come and bless his church. Waiting for him to come to poor, dry, withered hearts 
and refresh them again with his presence. Many of us are waiting for him to come to poor and dry and arid churches and grant them his blessing too. The question is, have we got the conditions right as individuals? Do we have it right as a fellowship? The atmosphere which God requires and demands before he blesses. How are we expecting him to come? Well, you know, we can't ignore church history. There have been times in the history of the church, and blessed times they were too, when he came as he did at Pentecost, with rushing mighty wind and tongues like a fire. But these, after all, have been occasional and exceptional blessings. Do not wait for the unusual and exceptional and the sensational. Believe he is always near. Study to be quiet, said Paul. Take away the haste and the fever from life. Open your hearts to receive him. Prepare your hearts for his coming. Believe in the regularities of grace. Cultivate the quiet things of the religious life. The quiet thing Christ himself appointed for those who wait for him. Times of prayer and of meditation on his word. Moments when you can reflect and recollect those quiet Sabbath days. When all the noise of the world is hushed. And those quiet and ordinary services of his house. The awful quietness that there was around the cross. When at the communion service bread is broken as he commanded. And the cup is passed from hand to hand. In silence, the memory of him among his waiting and expectant people. When we have the right atmosphere for him. He will come. He will bless his people. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. Be still then, and know that he is God. God delights to work in stillness. But I need to tell you too, that God often works in darkness. For it's not when the sun is shining that the Jew falls, It's when the sun has gone down and the breath of evening comes and the curtain of night is drawn and then when all is dark, the benediction descends, the sweet refreshment of the Jew. Surely that's a parable. And we've all proved the truth of it in our own experience. For it speaks of the manner of God and in the way which he deals with our souls. Not when the sun is shining high and resplendent in in our sky. When all is going well with the world. It's not then generally that we receive our chiefest blessings. And get great spiritual enrichments from heaven. No, my experience is that it happens when the sun is behind the cloud. And darkness falls across our lives. Times of depression and disappointment and discouragement. Times of loss and loneliness and defeat. When all the light seemed to have gone out and all its joys seemed to have been quenched. 
It is then that God draws near to us, reveals himself to us more intimately, and opens his chests, his treasure chests of grace. When all is going well with us and when we are prospering in the world, we are apt to get busy and to forget God, to to forget our dependence upon him, and our souls become dry, withered, and say it carefully, but sometimes near dead. It's only when the darkness comes that God has his chance with most of us, that he's able to bless our souls. And so it is of his mercy that he sometimes allows the darkness to settle round us, that he may later send the Jew and then bestow us with his kindness. One of the psalmists said, it is a good thing for me that I have been afflicted. He'd got to the one of the deepest secrets of life, and all the saints of God have said it after him, in every age and one day we will be saying it too every one of us one day when all the shadows of life lie behind us and when we've come to understand its meaning better in the backward look then we'll thank our Lord for the shadows as well as for the sunlight for we shall know the treasure which has come to us in the darkness the grace that has descended upon us in the night of sorrow, we'll recognize as heaven's due. God comes in stillness. God comes in darkness. And he comes too to the humble in heart. This is another great truth which I want to take from this lovely little phrase of Hosea's. The Jew always falls heaviest on the lowest ground. If you want to experience the Jew, don't climb up Ben Nevis in the darkest night because you're actually better going to the shores of Loch Lomond and finding a grassy field there. The heaviest Jew falls on the lowest ground. Put biblically, you don't find Jew on the cedars of Lebanon, but down in the lowest valleys where it falls abundantly, And every blade of grass has its own drop of dew. So we understand then why it is in the Bible, above all in the teaching of Jesus, that much stress is laid on the grace of humility. Do you know, humility comes from a Latin or a Greek word. I think it may be Greek. Humus. Humus means the ground. It's the grace which is lowest of all. The grace that lies nearest to the ground. The Lord Jesus said it first in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus exemplified this for all time in himself, in his own perfect life and character. Learn of me. For I am meek, lowly in heart. And you remember, he stooped to a manger. And later, he who was the Son of God stooped to a cross. He humbled himself. All the garments of Christ are dripping 
with you. Thus says the High and Holy One who inhabiteth eternity and whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and with him also that is of a contrite and a humble spirit to to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. The first thing then God will do with us if he's to bless us is to break our pride and to clothe us with the grace of humility. And the place where he breaks our pride and puts the robe of his grace around us is at the foot of Calvary's cross. That's why the cross was erected there, to break our pride, to bring us to our knees. God be merciful to me, a sinner. He gives grace to the humble, and there's nothing that so humbles a person than a sight of the cross, the sight of the crucified Son of God, crucified for sinners, crucified for them. The saints of all the ages. Sometimes I see them in my imagination, down in a valley, down on their knees, and there's a big cross there, and they're facing towards it, and they're praying, and as I look, as I look, I know that clothes are covered in the dew. And I want to go and kneel with them there. We we all want revival in the world. We want revival in the church. We want revival in our tired, dark, withered, dried hearts. And we can have it. But only upon certain conditions. He comes only when these conditions are fulfilled. He comes in stillness. He comes through the darkness and he comes to the humble in heart. Be still then and know that he is God. Trust him in the darkness. Get down on your knees before the cross of Christ and he will come. And his coming will be like the dew of the morning. And so we say in closing, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. May God bless his word.